Hello everyone and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and today we'll be talking about how to relate to people in the public square on the issue of Christianity and God's existence. And these questions are pretty loaded in this day and age because back in the day Christian apologetics very much centered around questions like how does a good God allow evil or uh, was God the prime mover in the universe? Did God create the world? Did he create the universe? Uh, are we bound by God's law? Did the resurrection historically happen? Did the miracles of the Bible actually take place? But that debate has shifted uh, to a very, very large degree for a couple of reasons. And in my, in my view, one of the primary reasons that we've we've moved away from intelligent discussions on Christianity and why many of the arguments that you'll see taking place, uh, whether that be online uh, or whether that be even in person, are so informed by ignorance, if you will, is we are no longer operating from a collective set of facts that everybody is aware of. So years ago, people just understood uh, certain things about Christianity. People knew uh, what Christianity basically taught. Most people would have at least a passing knowledge of the Bible. Uh, the Lord's Prayer wouldn't have sounded unfamiliar to anybody. And so uh, even people who did not believe in Christianity or rejected its teachings outright would still be able to engage in a conversation about Christianity with a certain level of common knowledge. Uh, that would allow a discussion to proceed. Whereas uh, these days, most people have no biblical knowledge whatsoever. The vast majority of people have just simply never read the Bible to begin with. We actually have a lot of evidence to indicate that a lot of people get the only knowledge they have about the Bible, and I, I, I say knowledge here in, in large scare quotes, uh, they get this knowledge from, from awful Hollywood films that don't tell the story accurately or insert overt falsehoods into it. Either way, essentially, people are just tremendously ignorant of the basic trajectory of the biblical story. And so when they confront Christianity, they're not even confronting it as people who have something of an idea of what Christianity is all about to begin with. And so that also places us in a more difficult position when we're trying to have discussions because what you have now is a lot of young people that essentially, if they so-called grappled with these questions, are more, more likely than not have read you know, Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or one of these so-called new atheists who are rhetorically fierce but philosophically feeble. If any of you have ever seen the late Christopher Hitchens debate or watched some of his debates on YouTube, essentially what he does is, is he tries to explain Christianity and then uh, mock it and explain why he is glad it's not true. Uh, he, he essentially tries to make it seem as if it's, it's evil or wicked, even though, of course, he has no standard of, of what is good or evil and no standard of what is wicked uh, to make a judgment like that to begin with. Uh, but, but either way, these are very, very powerful tools to use, and they put us in a more difficult place when we want to have a real discussion. Now, the second reason that it's, it's much more difficult to have a conversation about Christianity in the public square is one that 
I, I, I bet that most of you would be pretty familiar with. And this is definitely a, a big problem for those of us who work in the pro-life movement. Uh, it's a big problem for any of us who write on any social conservative topic. And it's basically a big topic for anybody who tries to insert uh, a, a statement about God or faith or Christianity into a conversation with somebody secular. And that would be the fact that most people have now personalized their beliefs in a, in a very specific way. So a lot of people aren't complaining uh, that you know, Christianity isn't true because they've grappled with uh, the philosophical question of whether or not a good God can allow evil. Uh, rather, they think Christianity can't be true because they know a very pleasant gay couple down the street. Uh, they're you know nice and loving people. And if Christianity uh, only supports traditional marriage uh, and says that all other forms of marriage are invalid, then Christianity must be wrong because uh, their friends are nice. Or, you know, let's, let's take another example that I deal with all the time. Uh, a more specific example that I deal with all the time, which would be the issue of abortion. Right? The question about abortion is, does abortion end the life of a developing human being in the womb? Uh, the obvious answer to that, both due to the evidence and simply due to the reality of what the abortion procedure is, uh, would be yes. But when you talk to some people about this, their response could be, well, my sister or my friend or my mother or somebody else that I know and love had an abortion and therefore it can't be wrong. In other words, somebody I love uh, is involved with this behavior or has done this or that action and as a result... Uh, this action cannot be a wrong action, and therefore the system of belief that says this is wrong uh, must rather uh, be erroneous, must rather be false. And so this, of course, means that we have to be uh, very wise in how we go about having these conversations. Now, in regards to abortion, of course, we simply approach uh, the abortion debate using a series of assumptions that the vast majority of people in our culture already holds. So we simply ask, uh, do you believe in human rights? Most people will answer yes to that question. And then you ask, well, who gets human rights? And nearly everybody is going to tell you, well, human beings get human rights. And then after that question, you say, well, when should human rights begin? Well, of course, human rights should begin when the human being begins. And as such, abortion is a human rights violation that ends the life of a developing human being. So there are different apologetic angles we can take in response to each issue, but in response to some of the bigger questions, we have to be uh, even more careful because they're even more difficult to have. So today for, for a little discussion, uh, I asked uh, Frank Turek, Dr. Frank Turek, who's an American Christian author. He's a public speaker and a radio host. Uh, some of you might have heard of his books. I certainly heard about them a couple of years ago already and, and saw them for sale at a lot of Christian apologetics conferences. Uh, one of them is uh, Stealing from God, and the other is I Don't Have Enough to, Faith to Be an Atheist. He's also an author of a couple of other books like uh, Correct, Not Politically Correct, and Legislating Morality. And he's uh, spoken to almost every issue. A lot of Christian apologetics have a specialization. And uh, Dr. Frank Turek seems to have covered almost every topic in the meantime. So uh, he was kind enough to agree to come on and just have a discussion about reaching out in the public square and, and where we're at. And I hope you enjoy the discussion as much as I did.
right. Just to start off, of all of the questions that you deal with, what would you say the number one barrier to people accepting the truth of Christianity in today's culture is? Their own will. They don't want it to be true because they want to do their own thing. So that's why I always ask them the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And many of them will say no, because they don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God. They want to, they want to be God of their own lives, so they don't want there to be a God outside of themselves. So it's really not a question about the intellect. It's more an issue of the heart. It's not a, not a head problem. It's a heart problem. But if you're asking a head question, right. you know, what, what's the issue that they say is uh, maybe more uh, a reason they're not a Christian than any other, <clears throat> probably I would say maybe the existence of evil in the world. Right. Why is, if there's a good God, why is there evil? That's, that's a big one. Uh, some believe that science and religion are incompatible, and they think since science has made such has made our lives so much better than, you know, why would I even be concerned about a religious question? Now, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's true, but I think science has made our lives better. But it, I think it's a misunderstanding to think that science and Christianity are, are at odds. If anything's at, at odds with, with uh, science, it's atheism. Yeah, it's interesting that you said their own will, because uh, as my listeners would know, and as you would know as well, uh, I do a lot of pro-life work, and we consistently find that many people support abortion because of feelings. Somebody they know and love has had one, they want to keep the option open, and the science of embryology and you know the philosophy of, of human rights isn't the reason uh, for their position. And so as such, we have to develop apologetics that reach people on both an intellectual level and a heart level. And as such, we, 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 we have debates that look very different from, say, what an apologetics book would tell you a debate about abortion uh, should look at. So how do you reach a generation that, as you put out, doesn't want to believe in God and to a large degree has very personal and non-philosophical reasons for believing that God doesn't exist or that Christianity is false? Well, it's the old question that you ask people, what's the greatest problem in America today? Is it ignorance or apathy? And I remember one person saying, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> right? You know, yeah. it's, if they don't care, Jonathan, I, I don't know what you can do about that other than pray for them, love them, uh, and then when they're ready, maybe you've already earned the right to have a hearing with them or for them to hear you. Um, because if people aren't interested, there's got to be some event that occurs in their life that may cause them to suddenly become interested, mm -hmm. whether that's suffering or a uh, issue that comes up that they hadn't anticipated. I mean, sometimes, as C.S. Lewis said, you only look up when you're on your back. Right. When everything's going great, you may not be interested in God or uh, eternal matters. You're just concerned when everything's going great with uh, how you feel and you know, is my life going the way I want it to go? They don't, they don't think they have any needs. Jesus, of course, who famously said that it's difficult for a rich man to get into heaven, be, and I think the reason for that is because is a rich person is pretty much self-secure and doesn't think he or she needs God. Now, thankfully, Jesus didn't say it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven, because if that were the case, it's about everybody in America would, wouldn't be able to get in. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, we're in pretty good shape overall. Yeah. So apathy is a hard one. Um, I mean, you can talk to people, you can love them, you can be there for them when they're going through difficulty, but it's really hard to get people 
who are apathetic interested. In fact, I, I ask all the audiences I speak to now when I remember to do so, I ask them to think of somebody who's not a Christian, who, whom they'd like to be a Christian. And then I ask this question. Is the person you're thinking of on a relentless pursuit of truth? You know, They want to know whether Christianity is true or not. Or are they apathetic or maybe even hostile to the Christian faith? And 99 people out of 10 will say uh, they're, they're apathetic or hostile. Very few will raise their hand and say, oh, yeah, the person I'm thinking of really wants it really wants to know if it's true. No, most people are apathetic or hostile. Right. Well, it's interesting because uh, I earlier this week I reread uh, Peter Hitchens' book, The Rage Against God. And in his book he said that his famous uh, atheist brother, of course now the late Christopher Hitchens, would not be converted by an intellectual debate, but instead by maybe some sudden, uh, sudden moment of poetry, some beautiful music or art that touched his soul in a way that uh, intellectual debate simply couldn't have. Um, and he, of course, said this prior to uh, Hitchens' diagnosis uh, with esophageal cancer and subsequent uh, death in 2011. But you actually debated Christopher Hitchens several times, and you had very intellectual debates with him. Do you think that Peter Hitchens' analysis there is correct that somebody like him can only be reached through the force of poetry or art. Well, he knew his brother better than I did, and I, I think he's probably right about that. In fact, I remember Christopher saying, uh, "Transcendence. What is transcendence?" He said, "Well, music seems to be transcendent. You know, there's something beyond just molecules in motion." And so he was a he was a journalist and a, a lover of poetry and and literature. So. Beauty might be the way through which somebody like that would come to Christ. And if you think about this, I don't know who said this, but I, whoever said it was right on. Beauty is the battleground upon which God and Satan fight for the souls of people. Right. Because we're all attracted to beauty, and the reason many people aren't interested in God is because they're attracted to things that God created rather than God. They don't really even understand that God is the source of all beauty. And so, as Paul says in Romans 1, they worship the creation rather than the creator. In fact, at the end of the day, there's only two religions. There's, you're either worshiping the creator or the creation, some aspect of the creation. And most of us, even Christians, are doing that. You know, we're worshiping, and we have an idol that we put before God, whether it's sex, money, power, recognition, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. We put that in front of God all the time. And uh, not recognizing that all of that ultimately comes from God anyway, and that he is the source of it, and we should be worshiping him. One of the other difficulties that a lot of other apologists that I've talked to have mentioned is that, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, apologetics debates often would revolve around the compatibility of, of Christianity and science or uh, the problem of evil. But now uh, objections have often been extremely personalized. So since the legalization of gay marriage, for example, it would be, you know, I hate Christians because uh, they don't think that Joe and Bob, who are good friends of mine, should be able to get married, or that their relationship is morally valid, or, um, you know what, I have friends uh, who are living together, and they're lovely people who love each other, and Christian Christians are, you know, hateful and judgmental uh, for saying this. And of course, there's obviously the, the conflating of, of what people do versus uh, who they are, so, you know, you can love somebody and disagree and disapprove 
uh, of what they're doing. But how do you respond in situations where the intellectual and philosophical apologetics are more or less rejected as as completely irrelevant? And in an age uh, of feelings, besides, as you said, just praying for people and reaching out, how do you respond to somebody who says to you, you know, Christianity is evil because it's preventing my friends from being happy or would prevent my friends from being happy? I ask, what do you mean by evil? Because they're presupposing a standard there that that a atheistic worldview doesn't have. That's why I recently wrote a book called Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. Mm-hmm. Atheists claim that they have certain rights, whether it's the right to same-sex marriage or uh, abortion or whatever right they think they have. Well, if there's no God, there's no right to anything. In fact... There's no right to natural marriage or life if there's no God. There's no right to anything. So if you're going to say that Christianity is immoral or Christianity is evil, you're presupposing it. And it turns out that that standard is God himself. So you're stealing from God to argue against him. You have, you have to sit in God's lap to slap his face, which is one of the things I said to Peter, to Christopher Hitchens, because mm-hmm. he, he, he had all these moral absolutes while having no justification for establishing these moral absolutes. I mean, if atheism is true, if we're just molecular machines, if we're just moist robots, there is no objective morality. There is no right to anything. And yet they're claiming they have all these rights. So I would go and challenge the premise of the objection. And and, and it is true that today many issues are related to morality. You know, as you said, well, and, and, and many of these are sexual issues. You know, they want to have so-called sexual freedom. That was Christopher Hitchens' issue, too. Uh-huh. But again, if you're going to say you have what sexual freedom, whatever that means, you're presupposing a moral standard that somehow sexual freedom, by your definition, is a good. Well, what do you mean by good? Where does good come from? So I would just challenge the premise of the question and point out that um, the source of all goodness, the source of all rights, is God himself. And God doesn't put in these moral restraints for his benefit. I mean, he doesn't get anything out of us obeying, because he's an infinite being. You can't help him by... Loving him, you can't hurt him by cursing him. It's us that get the benefit. God puts moral boundaries into our lives to protect us. Much like there are guardrails on a highway to protect the drivers. They're there for our benefit. They're not there for God's benefit. So people think God's a cosmic killjoy when, in fact, he's putting these guardrails in place to protect us so we can enjoy life better. And how would you begin to make that case intellectually to somebody who was at least willing to hear you out? Well, I, you know, it's 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 hard to make this case in a short period of time mm-hmm. uh, in detail. So we we write books, obviously. <laughs> yeah, dealing from God is one on the, the same-sex marriage issue. We, I wrote a little book called "Correct, Not Politically Correct: How Same-Sex Marriage Hurts Everyone," and that book will get you fired, by the way. Right. You can Google and find that out. How what happened to me <laughs> just for writing a book it had nothing to do with what I was doing at work, but you know, in the name of inclusion, tolerance, and diversity, I was excluded. So uh, I, I think you can make the case, A, by pointing out there's, there's a moral standard out there. Uh, and if you say there's no moral standard, then there's nothing wrong with prohibiting same-sex marriage. Or there's nothing wrong with prohibiting abortion. There's nothing wrong with any of these moral rights you think you have. There's nothing wrong with anyone preventing you from engaging in those so-called rights. So the atheist can't have it both ways. If you're going to claim you have moral rights, then you have to have a source of moral rights. If you're going to claim there's no moral rights, then you can't complain that anything Christians are doing is wrong. 
Do you have some examples of conversations in which you've made this case that have led to people changing their mind or softening towards the position? Because I know that some people think that one of the reasons they they shouldn't bother uh, you know sharing what their beliefs are is simply because the discussion isn't going to end well. That people aren't open to it, and as such. What's the point? Do you have any examples of conversations where the sorts of uh, arguments that you do lay out in your books, which I have on my own bookshelf, have proven effective? Well, sure. We get emails all the time of people writing and say, I've been watching on YouTube or watching on Facebook, and you really helped me. And you know, But uh, other people like me get that, too. You know, William Lane Craig and Sean McDowell and Jay Warner Wallace and you know, people out there that are doing the same thing. They get the same kind of letters and, and emails, thankfully. Now, we all get a lot of hate mail, too, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you see, Jonathan, I don't think it's the 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 point. This this the secondary point is okay. People are helped by this, but the primary point is we're supposed to do what's right and leave the results to God. Right. That's why even when people say, "Well, there's no sense talking about same-sex marriage," you know, because the, the culture's already accepted that it's already been imposed on us by the Supreme Court. That's that's irrelevant. Even if that were true, what you do is you you speak the truth. And you leave the results to God. You you might never win a political debate, but that's not your point. Your your job is to try and show people the truth, and maybe individuals are persuaded, even if the the whole culture isn't. Because right. God God saves people individually; He doesn't save nations. Right. Do you think that there's been a conflation of sort of nationalistic morality versus the individual duty to reach out and do apologetics, especially in this in- incredibly polarized? Uh, time that we live in, where it's become increasingly easy to simply demonize those on the other end of the aisle rather than trying to engage them. And engaging with people who disagree with you is not something that people are very interested in these days, even though uh, social media has provided us with with actually unprecedented opportunity to do so. Yeah, but the problem with social media is that it's it's very easy to become angry and snarky on social media such that you would never you would never do such a thing if the person was standing in front of you right you know it's kind of like driving everybody's everybody's an idiot when you're driving you're never wrong it's always the other person but if you bumped into somebody on the sidewalk inadvertently you wouldn't you wouldn't have the same attitude you would if 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 they cut you off in traffic, you know, I mean, right. So social media is a lot like that. And that's why it's a problem. I I think it's much more effective to talk to people one-on-one in person. And I think some of the, some of the, uh, some of the questions that Greg Kokel puts in his book tactics are very helpful. You know, when people say something, it's not your job to refute what they say. It's their job to support what they say. So they say, Oh, you know, Christianity is full of a bunch of bigots. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by bigots? What's your definition of bigotry? I asked that of a homosexual activist once, and he said, fear and intolerance. I said, that's not a definition of bigotry. What does that mean? And I went on to say, if anybody's a bigot, sir, it would be you, because you're judging my position without even knowing what it is. I wrote an entire book on this topic, which you haven't read, and you're calling me a bigot. Bigotry is prejudging something without you know, having any evidence. You just, You just... Fly off the handle, and you decide this is this is the truth about this issue. You haven't even investigated, or this is the this this person has some unjustified prejudice, and uh, he's wrong. And you haven't even asked the person why they believe what they believe. Now that's bigotry. It's not it's not bigotry to hold a position. If that were the case, if it was bigotry 
because I disagreed with the homosexual activist, then it would be bigotry of him because he disagreed with me. Disagreement is not bigotry. Disagreement is just disagreement. See why people disagree. Don't start calling people names. When you see people make their case, what's the one thing that you wish they would all recognize and employ? So, for example, as a pro-life activist, one of my key frustrations uh, is, is watching politicians who are pro-life make their case in a way that actually undermines their own position. So, for example, I often hear uh, politicians say, well, I believe life starts at conception. And I think, well, who cares what you believe? You should be making the statement, life begins at conception, and then defending that statement as a, a biological reality that is, a, is easily provable to anybody who, who wants to take a look. When you say sort of, right. I believe life starts at conception, you're voluntarily making your position subjective and giving somebody else the opportunity to say, well, I don't believe that, right? Um, so that's sort of one of my, my main criticisms as a pro-life activist of, of politicians who are making their case, even when they're doing it from a very well-intentioned in place. What's one of the things that you see that sort of uh, frustrates you and, and, and that you wish people would, you know, speak more carefully or use a different kind of tactic or argument? Well, I think just asking questions makes more sense than trying to make statements all the time. So I think challenging the assumptions of questions is really the important first step forward. And that's why when people say something, I say, well, what do you mean by that? Or how'd you come to that conclusion? Or what do you mean by evil when they say evil? What do you mean by bigotry? Or they say there is no truth. Is that true? You know, <laughs> you ought not judge. Then why are you judging me for judging? You know, just deal with the either the self-referential nature of the issue or of the statement. If it's self-defeating, where they say there's no truth, they're claiming it's true, there's no truth. You need to point that out. I wish more people would do that. And you also need to challenge the assumptions behind the question. Christians are evil because, what do you mean by evil? And where, where are you getting the standard of good from if there's no God? So challenging the, the assumptions behind the questions is important. And by the way, Jesus did this routinely. He always mm -hmm. asked people questions who asked him questions. Mm -hmm. All the atheists you've debated, which ones presented the most interesting arguments? Jeffrey Lauder, who's a really good guy, who uh, actually at least tries to present arguments for atheism. Right. Whereas most of the other atheists just, they don't really have arguments. They have complaints about the way God's running the universe. Right. That's really, really true. You know, they, they just have complaints. They just they just don't like it. And, and Lauder will try and make a case for his worldview Whereas some of the other atheists will say, well, I just lack a belief in God. Like, that's the definition of atheism for them. Well, if that's, if that's just the definition of atheism for them, then A, they're not really saying anything about the real world. They're just saying something about their psychological state, which is irrelevant to any kind of debate. Secondly, they don't really believe that they just lack a belief in God because they try and come up with positive arguments for materialism. They'll try and say, well, we got here through evolution or quantum vacuum explosions or the multiverse. They'll have all these arguments that'll try and show that God isn't necessary. So it's not just like they lack a belief in God. They have positive reasons, they think, to believe in multiple universes or evolution or whatever other, other uh, supposed God substitute they bring forward. Uh, and thirdly, if they're going to say they just lack a belief in God, then what do you say to somebody who actually says there is no God? What is their position? Right. How do you, what do you call somebody who says, I think there's no God? You call them an atheist? If the same 
If another person says, I'm an atheist because I just lack a belief in God. In other words, the definition is too vacuous. It doesn't really say anything. I mean, a, 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 a computer lacks a belief in God, right? A, a piece of dirt lacks a belief in God. If you're going to say, that, that's what an atheist is, you're really not saying much. So there are people out there like Jeffrey Lauder who will try and make a positive case for their position, and they won't just say they lack a belief in God. Other people I debated, Christopher Hitchens, David Silverman, Michael Shermer, they, they, they don't really have arguments for their position. They just try and avoid saying that God exists. And often the position seems to be, as somebody once said about a prominent atheist, uh, that his position could be summed up in the sentence, uh, God doesn't exist and I hate him. Yeah, that's why I ended both debates with Hitchens. <laughs> oh, did no you? God and I hate him. <laughs> there is no God and I hate him. And uh, but God, but God says there is Christopher Hitchens and I love him. All right. So that's the difference. God actually loves us, even if we hate Him. One final question is for our listeners: What are a few resources you would recommend uh, that they get, that they read, that they familiarize themselves with, so, so they can be equipped to have these discussions? Uh, articulately and winsomely in the public square. Crossexamined.org is our website, and our app, Jonathan, has a quick answer section on it with some of the questions and issues we've been talking about. Uh, two words in the App Store, cross-examined. They can download that. We've had 150,000 people download it, so they're finding it helpful. Great. It has our TV program on there, our radio program, and then our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Right. Would, would be helpful. Uh, the new book, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. And if there's just one other book I'd recommend for conversing with people, it would be Greg Kokel's book, Tactics, because yes. that has a lot of good uh, how-to information on how to navigate conversations. So maybe those, the the website, the app, uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, stealing from God and tactics, that ought to keep people busy for a while. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Absolutely. I appreciate it, Jonathan. We're also on radio and TV, and they can access that via our website as well. Sounds good.